all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 480, whereby we hope Sarah says embarrassing things like, how spooky the show is going to be. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to start right off the top of the show. It's a spooky episode of the whole view. There we so, go. So traditionally, we have done like a health focused show around Halloween and talked about, you know, if you want to focus on building up your gut health and like those kinds of things. If that's what you're looking for, we've got about eight years worth of those shows <laughs> in the catalog. So more than welcome to go back and listen. This week is different and I'm super excited about it because it was an idea that I had. I personally am so interested in this topic because we're going to address both like the long-term side effects of being scared, if we're going to phrase it that way, versus um, the effects that you might get from kind of short iterative bursts of being interested in things like true crime or horror movies. And um, one of the things that we talked about last week is how like long-term stress can have negative um, effects on your health and how I improved my cortisol and overall health by reducing my stress both with coffee and in other ways. And one of the ways that I did that was in stop watching shows that were making me anxious. Um, so for me, I like heard so many good things about Handmaid's Tale and I was like, I can't do it. Like, I just know that that is going to be stressful for me. Um, and being aware of how a show makes you feel is important because there is a literal biological response that happens when you are watching a show that is affecting you. And so we're going to talk about the science of that. And also there's some good news here in terms of how little bursts of fear-based things, and I'm using a quotation marks here, but right, like if, if you have a jump scare or something like that, and then you recover from it, what that might be doing from your health in a positive way. So I'm super excited for Sarah to geek out on this topic. We, um, I already did a little preview. Um, if you want to know more about that preview, I hope you'll join us on Patreon after the show, because we have a story to tell. But <laughs> yeah, we do this week. Um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and let you get into it because I'm excited. Well, one of the things that I, I think is so fascinating that I, would be a really great place to start is the very individualistic nature of the fear response. Because one of the things that you just mentioned was the the show that you gave up watching, the anxiety-inducing Handmaid's Tale, was like one of my favorite shows. But you also, one of the things you didn't mention is that you also kind of like the like 
Halloween horror chainsaw massacre type yeah, movies. Yeah, they don't bother. They don't bother me at and all. The same. I way. can't go anywhere near those movies. I get horrible nightmares. I have a really intense fear response. So one of the things that I want to sort of touch on right from the get go is what creates a pleasurable fear response. Right, the the type of jump scare or fear that we we love and we want to keep coming back to is very individual and it can span this huge spectrum like all the way from right true crime scary movies right there's documentaries that would fit into here um and then like all the way to thrill seeking behavior like skydiving and bungee jumping or maybe the the more you know safer version of that uh, roller coasters right there there's an entire spectrum here that really has the heart of that biology is the same thing, which is the biology of fear with the context that our brain provides with the additional information that we have. And it's fascinating to really get into the hormonal response because the hormonal response is really at the root of the positive associations with fear. But this whole thing starts with, Stacey, I believe this is your favorite area of the brain. Amygdala, which happens to be that uh, thing that I've taken a lot of training about and looks like your fist all balled up. <laughs> and, and acts like your fist all balled up sometimes. The amygdala is a very sort of ancient and deep part of the brain that plays a role in emotional processing. It monitors the body's environment and the reactions to the environment. It evaluates and events emotional significance. It actually organizes responses that you may or may not be conscious of. My husband had the experience just last night driving home from work where a car tried to turn left in front of him when he didn't actually have space. And my husband had to slam on the brake in order to not T-bone that car. And I asked, I was like, well, did you, did you lay on the horn? And he said, honestly, my car was stopped before I even registered what was happening. And I said, your amygdala kicked in and you need to thank your amygdala. This is the kind of dinner conversations we have in our house. But the amygdala is the part of the brain that initiates that fast response to danger before the rest of our brain can even register what's happening. That is the magic of the amygdala. And as we talked about in our generalized anxiety show, that's also sometimes the challenge of the amygdala because it can sometimes perceive danger where there is none and drive an anxiety response, especially when the amygdala isn't communicating very effectively with other regions of the brain. But just reining that back into this episode and talking about the fear response in a normal sort of response, what happens next if the amygdala goes, ah, danger, um, it sends a signal to the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus we've talked about on the show a ton of times because the hypothalamus is like this little command center in the brain and it communicates with the rest of the body. We've talked about it in the context of hormones, right? HPA axis, the H is for hypothalamus, but there are a ton of HP something else axes in the body where the hypothalamus talks to the pituitary gland, which talks to another endocrine gland in the body. In this case, the hypothalamus can communicate with hormones, but it can also communicate through the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is the part of our nervous system that controls involuntary body functions. So that includes things like breathing, heartbeat, 
blood pressure. Um, it has two components. It has the sympathetic nervous system, which is also called the fight or flight nervous system. It is like the gas pedal in a car, right? It provides the body with a burst of energy so that it can respond to whatever dangers the amygdala perceived. And then there's the parasympathetic nervous system, which is also sometimes called the rest and digest nervous system. It's uh, like the brake on the car. So it is the nervous system or the part of the autonomic nervous system that calms everything down after the danger has passed. So the amygdala detects the danger, tells the hypothalamus that there's danger. The first thing the hypothalamus does is actually transmit a signal through the autonomic nerves to a part of the adrenal glands called the adrenal medulla. And this is important because different parts of our adrenal glands produce different hormones. So we talked just last week about the adrenal glands producing cortisol as the master stress hormone. In the case of this particular highly, right, there's a lot of overlap in this system, the adrenal medulla is producing adrenaline and noradrenaline and releasing that into the bloodstream. And these are hormone neurotransmitters that have a whole range of really important effects that culminate in changes to our physiology that prepare us to be more efficient in a dangerous situation so that we can survive. So our brain becomes hyper alert. Uh, our heart rate and blood pressure accelerate. Our breathing rate accelerates. We get a burst of blood sugar into our, our bloodstream to provide fuel for our muscles. And kind of you know analogous to what happens in the hormonal part of the system where we're producing cortisol, organs that are not vital for survival, like the gastrointestinal tract, digesting our food, are deprioritized. So they slow down. So adrenaline and noradrenaline are also part of that. But here's where the rest of the brain kicks in and provides context for the fear response. And this is super cool. So the amygdala detected the danger, told the hypothalamus, act, something's happening. The hypothalamus told the adrenal glands to throw out all of its adrenaline and noradrenaline so that we can react super quickly. But then the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex also communicate with the amygdala and the hypothalamus. So the hippocampus is really important for uh, collecting sensory information and interpreting it. And then the prefrontal cortex is the area of the brain where we do all of our advanced thinking, executive function, planning, basically what you think of conscious thought, the things that are just going on in your head when you think something that you can uh, you can identify as a thought that is happening in the prefrontal cortex. So they provide a context based on the information that they have that either helps to accelerate that fear response or dampen it. So for example, if you saw a lion in the wild, that would trigger a very strong fear response and you would get the mass of adrenaline and you would run away from the lion and try to survive it. If you saw the same lion in a zoo, you can tell your conscious brain can tell your amygdala, hey, no, we're actually safe. There's this super strong glass between us and that lion. And you can instead go, oh, it's so cute. It's like a really big cat, right? And you can have a completely different response to the exact same lion. And it's because of the thinking brain being able to, to dampen that fear response through logic. Now, what's really cool is that 
we can learn fear and safety. So part of what the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus do is they actually can bring information not just from what we're observing at the time, but learned information. So that learned information can be from previous experiences. If you uh, were once attacked by a, a dog, then when you run see a, a dog that's barking and growling at you, you're going to have a stronger fear response than if all of your previous experiences with dogs have been super cuddly. You can also learn fear and safety through... Uh, stories from other people through uh, written form, right? So if the dog is by a beware of dog sign, you're going to use that information in your fear response. So your brain's going to go, oh, look, that dog is barking and growling at me. And there's a beware of dog sign. So I know this is not a nice dog. I'm going to be more afraid. If that dog is beside a sign that says, uh, all bark and no bite, <laughs> don't, don't worry, because I've seen those, I've never seen a sign like that on a fence, but let's pretend it's a world where those signs exist. Then you're going to take that piece of information and you're actually going to take the whole context. So you're going to take your previous experiences with dogs, you're going to take your ob observation of the behavior of this dog, and you're going to take the information that you have on the sign and your prefrontal cortex and hippocampus are going to take all of that information to basically dial in how intense the fear response is that is being mediated by the amygdala and the hippocampus. So if your thinking brain determines that you're safe, you get that rush of adrenaline and noradrenaline released by the adrenal medulla, and then the whole system is brought down and you, you just get the positive experience of the adrenaline rush and it doesn't lead into a stress response. But if your hippocampus and prefrontal cortex go, danger, danger, we're not safe, your fear response gets amped up and your hypothalamus now also communicates with your adrenal glands hormonally, which activates not just fear hormones, adrenaline, but also stress hormones, cortisol. So now you get both of those hormones working together, which then becomes a stressor response rather than just purely a fear response. It's so fascinating to think about, especially from the context of people who like want to be around lions all the time, that how, like how that functions for them. And for me, I think that equivalent is like taxes, right? <laughs> right? Like if we're extrapolating this to modern day, um, if you're constantly worrying or thinking about the stresses of life, the bills you have to pay and those kinds of things. It's like a persistent lion in your life without glass. But if you're like, okay, I can compartmentalize this. I know I'm taking care of it. I'm going to let my hippocampus, my hypothalamus, all these H words, um, <laughs> turn off that stress response. Then you don't have what we talked about last week, which is like this buildup of stress that can be really hard on your body and create that increased level of cortisol on a regular basis. So I guess my my next question would be how that process of the short bursts of fear, right? Like if we're moving forward with the understanding that um, 
listening to true crime or watching a scary movie or riding a roller coaster are offering these short-term things where your body cycles through and is able to close the loop. Um, what is that doing from a cortisol response in your body? Like, can it build up over time if you're like really into it and listening to it all the time or those kinds of things? So this is what's super cool is because uh, the reasoning brain is so important here, but also our baseline stress and actually baseline amygdala activation are really important here. So if we're talking about the context of sort of relatively managed, it doesn't need to be perfectly managed, chronic stress. So we don't have an overactive HPA axis to start off with, and we don't have an amygdala that's on high alert to, to, as a, as a baseline, then when we engage with, um, sort of a safe fear, right? So whether that is a true crime or a horror movie, or for me, obviously dystopia is, is what does this for me, right? We each have something that we resonate with differently. And the, the reason why we each have something different, why you can love a jump scare and not want to watch Handmaid's Tale and why I'm the 180 degree opposite of that is the context for us, right? So it is the, the whether or not a reasoning brain can tell us that we're safe in that moment. I am able to dissociate myself from a dystopia type television show more easily than I'm able to dissociate myself from a jump scare in a horror movie. And that is in large part because I associate horror movies with nightmares. So in a nightmare, I can't dissociate myself because it's an immersive experience. And because horror movies give me nightmares, that is that for me is where my brain goes, no, you're not safe because you're going to be living this in your dreams later. And I don't have that same response with a dystopia. That's just the way my brain works. And your brain obviously is the complete opposite. The dystopia is anxiety-inducing, um, harder to dissociate with for you, and yet the jump scares for you, your brain's like, yeah, but Freddy's not really in the room and I'm completely safe. My brain apparently thinks Freddy's going to be there later. So it's just, it's just a different way that our reasoning brains can tell ourselves that we're safe. So in the context of we're told that we're safe, we basically get the, the release of adrenaline and noradrenaline from the hypothalamus communicating to the adrenal glands via the nervous system, and we don't ever get to the cortisol-inducing effect. But there's a spectrum. So as soon as we're not sure, and sometimes this is the first time you watch a horror movie, but it's not the second time you watch the same movie because you know it's about to happen, or the first time you engage in a different kind of media that's sort of in this umbrella, or maybe it's a different, uh, you know, extreme sport that you've never done before. You have more of a of a unsafe feeling that is then going to you're you're going to end up in the spectrum where you have some HPA axis activation as well. So you also have the hormone communication from the hypothalamus via the pituitary gland to the adrenal glands and produce cortisol as well. So there's a full spectrum here. And then of course, on the, the very far end of the spectrum, which we can talk about in more depth, are thrill seekers, right? Sometimes called adrenaline junkies in the scientific literature, it's called sensation seeking. And these are people who actually don't get the adrenaline rush unless they feel unsafe, right? Like the risk-taking is part of the 
the production of adrenaline for those people. And this is all part of the same spectrum of um, trying to get that adrenaline and noradrenaline, and actually endorphins are released at the same time into the bloodstream without the stress response. So we want the fear response and not the stress response because the physiological effects of those fear hormones, there are some effects that actually are associated with really positive sensations. And it's those positive sensations when we can make it just contained to that and not become a stress response as well. It's those positive sensations that make us love to be scared and want to come back to it over and over again. This show is sponsored by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Sarah, seriously, you know how I'm super picky about personal Mm -hmm. home cleaning products? I think we've been contacted approximately 4,327 times uh, by different brands, and I am just hands excited to find public goods because they are making affordable, safer products. And they're squeaky clean. For example, their hand soap is better than any brand I could find at local box stores. I have looked at the label of every single hand soap locally trying to find one that was, you know, within the standards. And theirs is free of synthetic fragrance, which is so hard to find, parabens, SLS, phthalates, anything derived from formaldehyde. Plus, I love the clean look of their environmentally friendly, sustainable packaging. Oh, me too. I admit I have been addicted to their bamboo toilet paper for a long time, which is a very weird thing to say, but I also love their cleaning products. Their multi-purpose cleaner works so well and it smells so lovely. It has like a jasmine scent into it from essential oils and their dish soap is my favorite. And I think what I'm trying to say is I love all of their products. I love that they ethically source and develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients because they also do food too and harmful additives. Um, And those things would still be allowed in like a common marketplace that you would find. So I love that they're committed to making those products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. And because they use a membership model, it keeps costs low to pass on even more savings. We got you all an awesome deal just for our listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products like we do and come back again and again that they are giving you $15. That's one $5 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash whole view or use code whole view at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C g-o-o-d-s dot c-o-m forward slash whole view to receive $15 off your first order. It's interesting you used the story of like the lion and the dog because my version of that story, my fear, my irrational fear is, um, snakes and I attribute it back to being chased by a water moccasin 
I know when I was just a wee lad, I think it was about 12 and we were boating and here in Virginia, we have like these swampy rivers. And all I remember is my dad screaming to me, swim fast. (laughs) Don't turn around. (gasps) And of course, like you're a kid and someone says don't turn around was the first thing you do. And then I was just like freaking out. So fortunately I was a good swimmer. I got away from wherever its nest was and it left me alone. But I have this like ingrained biological response to snakes. And my hypothalamus no longer works even if (laughs) even if there's glass even if you know what I mean even if it's like a garden snake and I know that it's completely harmless and they're actually really good for the earth and like I want to have I I like logically I want to have a positive relationship but my biology indicates to me like danger in a way that I cannot control. And I think it's interesting because when I hear you talk about these things, um, I think what's happening is I have essentially a trauma from the amygdala Mm -hmm. that is triggering the biological response of creating that adrenaline rush to help me swim fast again. Does that make, like, is that, is this a logical path that I'm following on how our fear response is working? Completely, completely. And this is this is why we can resonate with such different types of fear response, right? So we all kind of have a different um, flavor that we want, but it's actually really ingrained in human nature to seek out the the sensation of fear, in part because of the positive feelings of all of these hormones, but also because there's a, because of the learned aspect of this, right? You can imagine for, um, for us, we're, we're, you know, listening to true crime podcasts, we're watching horror movies or I'm not watching. We're seeking roller coasters. <laughs> we're going, we're going to theme parks so that we can go on all the fun rides. Um, and then of course there's the, the thrill seekers who are, are doing the extreme sports, right? There's that whole spectrum, but you can imagine, uh, you know, cavemen around the fire talking about, uh, their, you know, woolly mammoth hunt that day and how, you know, how intense that was. And that would have had the same effect, right? We, f- we find, these types of, um, in part, it's sort of like, it's now that it's a story and you came back from the woolly mammoth hunt alive and you're telling me the story, I can be immersed in that and have the adrenaline response listening to, you know, spoken word before we had any other means of communicating from, you know, one person to another. And that would have had the same response in, you know, ancient humans as we have today of like, tell me the scary story. Think about, um, you know, the, the campfire stories, right. And how like creepy those can be. And yet how deliciously wonderful those experience for, for many of us are. And then in your experience, right. Having, having, being able to draw this through line for snakes, right. If I told you a campfire story about a snake, you would just go, nope, (laughs) like it was, nope, not, 
I'm going to go find more marshmallows. Hard, See you later. Hard pass on anything yeah. snake related. But if you want to ride coasters later, you want to listen mm-hmm. to true crime or watch a scary movie, I am so down. <laughs> and it's it's because the context is so important. So it's I think it's really helpful to understand that this really covers a, a really, you know, the full gamut of fear experiences. And the thing that makes somebody like one type and not another is all of the other reasoning information that our brains bring in. And if you've had a legit, scary, life-threatening, I would argue a moxin chasing use a life-threatening experience, um, if you've if you've had that kind of trauma in your life, you're not going to resonate with something that you associate with that trauma because your your reasoning brain's not going to dampen the fear response. But if you're if we're going to just talk about I, the the story that I remember is about the disembodied hand scratching at the bottom of the boat. That's the camp story story that I remember t- being told and finding super creepy, but wanting to hear six thousand times. Um, that. That for me, I never met a disembodied hand, so I think that probably helps me. But (laughs) (laughs) fortunately, fortunately, phew. Um, But that that for me was like that was my favorite campfire story as a kid because it creeped me out, and actually it was better every time because the repetition increased the sensation of safety for me. And sometimes repetition, actually, often repetition will do that, right? So if you watch the same set of uh you know horror movies every halloween and you know you know the plot you know where the jump scares are you get to just thoroughly enjoy the adrenaline rush without your your reasoning brain doesn't even have to work very hard because you've you have the experience of you were safe the last (laughs) 10 times you did this you're still safe um so you get the adrenaline rush without even having to work very hard to dampen that fear response whereas if you're someone like me and you don't you don't watch those movies. I'm going to be a little ball of stress sitting on my couch with whatever as close to my eyes, almost covering them as possible, probably with a fist in my mouth or my mouth covered in some way by my hands the entire time. I'm going to jump at nothing. I'm going to start doing the flappy arms things in anticipation of the jump scare coming. And I'm going to make the experience hilarious for you, but just know that I'm miserable. because it's not my thing. Um, So I'm going to get the adrenaline with the stress response. I'm not going to get to enjoy the pure pleasure part of the adrenaline rush. And I guess the thing that makes the adrenaline rush pleasurable, um, I think of that kind of like two ways, right? I've had the adrenaline crash of coming down from um, extended amount of stress. So for example, mm-hmm. you know, uh, being bridesmaid in uh, a wedding and having like all this planning and like doing all this stuff. And then you kind of like get to the end of it. And what that feels like physically to me is like, if you're laying in a bathtub and the water is slowly draining out and you don't get out, but you can like feel the water slowly going <laughs> down. Like that's yeah. what an adrenaline crash feels like for me, right? Like it's just like everything kind of like shutting down and calming down versus um, an adrenaline rush. Like when I, I remember when we went to the roller coast for father's day, like the kids would get off the coasters and just be 
elated. Like they were mm-hmm. so proud of themselves and they were so confident and they were so excited and they want to do more. And they were like, even though we hated standing in line for an hour, want to go do it again. You know, like, and they would just have this boisterousness to them. Right. So what is that adrenaline rush and what's kind of the difference between those two feelings that I think are both associated with it. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yes, completely. So I will start off by sharing my adrenaline crash experience, which was, let's see now, eight, eight years ago, I had a kitchen accident, third degree burn, and I was in shock. I picked up the babysitter to watch my kids. Um, and then I called my husband and let him know I was, you know, I burned myself. I better go. I'm going to go to the doctor. Babysitter's here. I didn't really communicate to him how bad it was. It was a third, third degree burn. And I drove myself to the doctor's office where they looked at me and I was very, very calm. They bandaged all all up and then gave me like instructions for all of the stuff that I would need at home to continue to bandage it and the prescription creams and whatever. And so then I went to the drugstore and I got everything that I needed. I had a phone call with my publisher in the drugstore with a third degree burn and no pain medication. And I was, you know, getting all of my different supplies, waiting for my prescription, you know, burn medicated cream, and then went home. And then in the safety of my home, it all hit me. Um, It was classified as a 10% third degree burn. I don't think it was quite 10% of my body, but it was not, it was not insignificant. And then it was, I started shaking. I was incredibly thirsty. It was like it all hit and I was just completely wiped out and exhausted. And the the difference between, um, you know, somebody (laughs) jumping out at you and yelling boo and you kind of scream and jump and then have this little adrenaline rush and start laughing versus that real life experience is magnitude. So when we are engaging with media, it's a little burst of adrenaline. Um, when we're going through a real life event that is causing adrenaline and noradrenaline to be released into our bloodstream, it is a higher level and a sustained level. And so when we have just a small burst of adrenaline, it does, we don't have that crash because just the level's not as high. Whereas the crash is in part mediated by like running out of glycogen, sort of running out of blood sugar. Um, you can kind of see when we sort of talk about the, the physiological effects of adrenaline and noradrenaline, why if you have a lot of it in your bloodstream for a long time, eventually you're going to have a crash. So some of the things that adrenaline and noradrenaline do, they're also called epinephrine and norepinephrine. So adrenaline and epinephrine are the exact same thing. I don't know why it has two names and noradrenaline and norepinephrine are the exact same thing. So adrenaline binds to receptors in our liver cells that causes them to break down glycogen stored energy into glucose to increase blood sugar levels so that it basically everything has more energy, right? So our muscles have more energy to run away. Our brain has more energy to think really quickly It also uh, binds to receptors in lungs that causes you to breathe faster. It stimulates the cells of the heart to beat faster. It actually, in addition to providing that sugar for our muscles so we can run away or lift the car off the person or whatever it is, 
um, it actually also helps the muscle cells contract. Um, so it's actually changing blood flow in our muscles to be able to do that. Um, it also will cause us to sweat and it will actually inhibit the pancreas's ability to produce insulin so that that blood sugar can stay in our system faster. Noradrenaline or norepinephrine um, is sort of complementary to it. So it's also contributing to increasing blood sugar levels, increasing heart rate, increasing uh, blood vessel contractility, which increases blood pressure. What's really fascinating is noradrenaline via amygdala activation seems to be part of the neurotransmitter response that ends up leading to addiction, whereas adrenaline itself isn't, which is kind of just a, a fascinating aside. But when we have that rush of adrenaline, the there's there's lots of things that may not, we're not going to associate with necessarily a pleasurable experience, but some of the some of the effects of adrenaline that we are going to associate positively are going to be heightened senses, right? Heightened mental clarity, a decreased ability to feel pain, which was certainly my experience, and also increased strength and performance. Those are all really wonderful sensations to have. And then not only is adrenaline being released, but endorphins are being released as well. So endorphins are another peptide neurotransmitter, also generally considered a hormone, also released uh, during this same response, um, although it's released from, from the brain instead of the adrenal glands. And uh, endorphins have very strong analgesic properties because they're basically opioids in the body. Um, they block pain and they also create feelings of pleasure and euphoria. Um, they can cause a sense of loss of self. Um, so they can cause a dissociated feeling. Um, and they, so they're released by the pituitary gland and, uh, also are then released into the bloodstream. So they're, they're part of this response and they're, so there's 20 different kinds of endorphins. Beta endorphins are stronger than morphine. Um, and very interestingly, again, are kind of tied with addiction, which is going to be really interesting once we sort of dive into talking a little bit more about thrill seekers, but they're um, a, a large part of how um, how of the like the pleasure feeling that comes along with the adrenaline rush is actually mediated through the euphoric sense that comes from endorphins because they're basically binding with opioid receptors. So they can cause a feeling of pleasure, sense of satisfaction, um, in, in addition to sort of the analgesic, uh, type effects and like endorphins are even, for example, responsible for a runner's high. So, uh, running produces, uh, quite a lot of endorphins. And what happens for runners is they have to, they have to run longer and longer to get that endorphin rush called the runner's high, but it's been, uh, endorphins have been credited with why people, um, might be injured during a sports competition and not even notice their injury until the end. Um, very likely part of my, you know, feeling of shock when I had my third degree burn because I felt dissociated. I was super calm. I did not feel pain until I had that 
adrenaline crash. So part of the adrenaline crash is also the endorphin crash at the end. So when these things are really high in the body for a prolonged period of time, you are basically also then running out of energy. As it comes down, you your blood pressure is decreasing, you know, heart rate's decreasing again. You don't have as much stored energy, right? All of as all of those things start to return to normal, it would be completely expected to feel fatigue. It, I probably didn't eat or drink anything for the four hours it was in between when I burned myself and when I was finally home after all of that. Um, that was probably driving thirst in addition to using up all of that blood sugar would I would have needed to to hydrate because of of that metabolism as well. So all of those types of adrenaline crash symptoms can be very easily explained by the effects of a prolonged increase in both adrenaline and endorphins once once that life event is over. But when you're just talking about you know, listening to that fun true crime podcast and getting your bit of like adrenaline rush through that, you're getting the adrenaline and the, and the endorphins in a small burst. So you get that, all of the, the wonderful positive associations with it, and you, you're not having it in your system long enough for the physiology of the crash to happen. This podcast is sponsored by Rothy's. I feel like singing New Kids on the Block, like, uh, 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 hanging tough. <laughs> what? I don't know. I'm obsessed with my Rothy's, and I'm, like, so glad that they're back to give our listeners a discount. See, it's like a pun. No? You don't, you don't get it? Okay. Um, but also, my Rothy shoes are tough. Like, they are super tough. You can wash them. I own 16 pairs, two purses, and I can tell you that they hold up better than any similar brand I've tried. You know, they're hanging tough. Okay, I get it. I also, though, love Rothy's. They're a B Corp that uses sustainably made materials like upcycled plastic water bottles, which is just so cool. The Point are my new favorite pair of shoes. They're so comfortable, but also I feel so stylish wearing them. And after you were telling me about it, I really have my eye on the essential tote. It would make such a great gift. And in fact, my mom asked me for a pair of shoes for her birthday. So I started wearing Rothy's back when I injured my back years and years ago. They're so comfortable and classy looking. I wore them in the corporate office. And now the driver is my new favorite style because they have like cushioning on the bottom. So in 2021, I think we've all learned we don't need heels or hard pants. If they're good enough <laughs> for Meghan Markle, they're good enough for me, you know? For sure. They have so many styles and tons of colors, so you can always find the right one for you. And men, too. I got Matt a pair when the men's came out, and he really likes them. To help you welcome the fall season in style, Rothy's is doing something really special. That's right. They gave us the chance to share this super rare opportunity with our listeners for a limited time. Right now, you can go get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash wholeview. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash whole view head to rothys.com slash whole view to find your new favorites today one of the things that fascinates me about this whole process that we didn't address um is how it affects digestion so 
I I just want to like call out. Okay, let's yeah, actually let's use animal models for a second because we don't want to talk about humans pooping because that'll make <laughs> Stacy embarrassed. <laughs> but animal poop is fine. Wait, yes. Secret to talking about poop this no, whole time. Let's if just... I just talked about animal poop, we would have been fine. Now I'm embarrassed because you brought it back to humans. So I... if you could see me, um, beat red. I don't know what is wrong with me. Everybody poops. It's so embarrassing that I like. Did you am ever have that, talking about that this. book for your? Of course kids. I did, and they read it on their own. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Moving right along. You just couldn't get to the last page. You were fine the whole way through. And as soon as you got to the last page, you're like, nope, can't. I don't know what's wrong with me. So if we're thinking about this from the perspective of a zebra being chased by a lion, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. We've seen videos of the zebra dropping what's inside of them mm-hmm. to help them run faster. And one of the things that um, is interesting to me about this whole process are things that we might be afraid of that don't necessarily fall under the category of thrill seeking. But when you were talking, I was thinking about people who are public speakers and who get this like rush of positivity from the nervousness of going on stage and how that's that's like the adrenaline and endorphins kicking in, but at the same time, um, so for example, I get this if I'm like going to be out of control in some sort of way, like if I'm being interviewed by someone and I don't know what the questions are Mm. or do you know what I mean? And like my digestion is not happy with me (laughs) during this process. So I'm wondering if that is an indicator of, um, I mean, obviously, of your of the whole system kind of kicking in about nervousness, but if that's an indication of like this positive response or not, or if that's just bio individuality, or how does digestion come into play? Because I'm going to pause for a second and say I do not experience this when I get when I'm intentionally or like positively getting this sort of response. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I'm watching a scary movie or I'm listening to a true crime podcast, but I do, however, feel that way when I'm, for example, watching Handmaids and like really overwhelmed with the anxiety of as an empath, what it would feel like for me to live in that world. Does that, am, am I threading this needle well enough for you to understand a Fantastic. Question? Okay. It's going to be really hard for me not bring this back to humans. So I'm just going to do it. <laughs> okay. Just um, do it. As long as I don't have to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, definitely uh, mediated through the HPA axis. So it's mediated through the hormonal stress response beyond the fear response. So <gasps> it's actually. I knew it. Yeah. Um, which is exactly why you can draw a complete line between these things, this doesn't happen, and these things, this does. And it doesn't happen to everybody. So um, there's, it's definitely, there is some individual response there. And it's unknown in the scientific literature why, for example, some endurance runners have what they call runner's diarrhea or <laughs> the gingerbread man which is clever. Oh, stop. I did not bring us to that. I'm so sorry, listeners. But it's the same, it's the same mechanism. So it's the, because endurance training is a 
physical stressor as opposed to public speaking would be a psychological stressor, but the impact on the gastrointestinal tract is being mediated by both corticotropin releasing hormone, which is the hormone in the HPA axis that's released by the pituitary gland that tells the adrenal glands to release cortisol. Corticotropin releasing hormone actually has the strongest impact on gastrointestinal motility. Also, the blood flow is moved out of the intestines, and so that impacts motility as well, and also impacts gastrointestinal health, and then it's combined with the impact of cortisol. So basically, it causes a lower gastrointestinal spasm that can result in uh, run, run as fast as you can, right? Gingerbread man, that's where it comes from. I'm so uncomfortable with this conversation, but... (laughs) Also thrilled you, that I question. Okay, let's move on to the kind of positive aspect, which is what I'm hearing you say. This is not expected if your brain is acting in that closure manner, right? Like right. if the um, hippocampus is saying, "Nope, you're safe." It's that's going to happen before you're going to have digestive response. Mm-hmm. Okay, correct. Um, and also, it's part of right our our be, ability to reason through our safety once our amygdala detects something that may be scary or dangerous. Um, part of part of that reasoning is making sure that we're not activating a stress response. So uh, all the signs, all the things that we talked about last week on the show are all the things that if that's happening when you're engaging with a horror movie, then maybe that is not your brand of fun fear. Um, That's alliterative. I just realized fun fear is kind of an amazing thing to say. Um, And then, um, and then the other piece of that is right with safety also comes control. So the perception of control over our our environment is also a really important aspect in how we experience and respond to fear. And it's why when we can have the joy of endorphins and adrenaline and not dig into the stress response aspect, we can have those physical sensations associated with the adrenaline rush and then leave feeling satisfied, wanting to do it again, right? I got off the roller coaster and I want to get right back. I'm going to get back into that two-hour line because it was so much fun. It's worth waiting two hours to do again. That is because our hippocampus has been able to basically reason us through the fear so that we have the autonomic nervous system response and not the uh, hormonal response via the hypothalamus, right? So we're getting, we are getting a hormonal response, but it's adrenaline and endorphins and not cortisol. This podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley, maker of our favorite collagen-rich bone broth powder, which Sarah, I need to know, will it help me prevent my face from getting stuck and wrinkled in this scared position? (laughs) 
Well, actually, the collagen in bone broth powder is the protein that gives our skin strength and elasticity. We covered the detailed science on why collagen is amazing for our health way back in episode 430, where we shared the detailed research and information on the manufacturing processes. We are super picky about which collagen supplement we use because most are made through an industrial process that often uses chemicals and harsh solvents. It's important to be an informed consumer because not all collagen supplements are created equal. We both use and love Paleo Valley 100% grass-fed bone broth protein. It's made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides and antibiotics, which are slow simmered in filtered water and nothing else. And Paleo Valley does third-party testing to guarantee you're getting a clean, healthy product. It also has almost no flavor and dissolves super easily, making it really versatile. I put a big scoop into my coffee every single morning. And I love to put it in my tea and smoothies, but it's also fantastic in recipes. Our listeners can head to paleovalley.com and enter the code THEWHOLEVIEW at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. I'd suggest adding some meat sticks too. And don't forget to check out Paleo Valley's other fantastic products, like their food-based Essential C Complex, needed if you're stressed or an adrenaline junkie. So Mm -hmm. use code THEWHOLEVIEW. I know you mentioned thrill seekers earlier, and this is another kind of area that fascinates me, which are people who are professional, like, adrenaline chasers. I don't know how else to describe it, right? Like Mm -hmm. people who I think of the Olympian skiers who go down the hill and like, I am gritting my teeth and like my nails are digging into my palm. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, how could you do this over and over again? It's so scary but these people are doing this in training day in and day out or you know gymnasts who are doing things where they could like break their neck if they just like moved wrong a little you know what I mean like different things like the BMX bikers they're so uh, rock climbers like so many different people like that where I'm like if this is especially if you are a professional athlete like this you're doing this day in and day out what is what do you think is happening from their body's responses? Are they having, like you said, with the runners, that adrenaline response takes longer and longer to be achieved? Or are they experiencing this over and over again, where it might be building up like a cortisol wise? Or are they just like got real good brain control and they're telling themselves (laughs) like, it's not actually a problem. You're totally fine. (laughs) I think probably both. So I think when we're talking about a professional athlete, right, they are training to a point where they feel safe in their sport. So they are very likely because they're professional athletes, they're very likely in that, um, adrenaline rush phase because there's the adrenaline of the sport itself and the the adrenaline rush of competition, but because they've been training at that sport extensively for however many years or decades, um, they have their training and the muscle memory to be the thing that makes them feel safe in that sport. Compare and contrast to what would be defined as a thrill seeker is the person who, um, you know, their favorite activities are, you know, maybe they go skiing, but they're not professional skiers. They also want to jump out of an airplane with a parachute on their back. Um, or they want to go 
rock climbing uh, or base jumping or paragliding or right. And they're, they're constantly seeking the novel experience. So in scientific literature, they're, they're referred to as sensation seekers and it's sort of defined as the pursuit of novel and intense experiences without regard for physical, social, legal, or financial risk. So these are people who require feeling unsafe or feeling like they're taking a risk in order for them to enjoy the adrenaline rush. And it's kind of a whole different category. Like I'm, I'm certain there's personality traits that go with uh, sort of extreme sport athletes who are professionals in one particular sport. These are people who do a little bit about of everything and are always looking for the next thrill, the next thing they're going to jump off of with, a, you know, hang glider or, or, you know, parachute, right. Or the next cliff they're going to jump off of into the water or the next, uh, different mountain bike coursing course that they're going to be able to go on. That's got a cliff on one side. Right. So it almost requires, uh, real danger in order for it to be a satisfactory experience. And what's interesting about these, these people is that there's some science that actually may show that it's a form of addiction. It's not currently classified as a type of addiction, but it's, um, there, there definitely are some, some studies showing that the same type of, uh, neurotransmitter, um, sort of connections are happening in these people who participate in extreme sports, as you would see in, you know, chemical addiction, right? Drug abuse or, or alcohol abuse. And um, there's even been studies, there was a, a study done in 2016 where they took, um, they took uh, rock climbers and they basically said, you're not allowed to rock climb for the sake of the study. And they showed that after a period of time, those rock climbers, it, granted it was only eight of them, but they all experienced withdrawal type symptoms, um, which would be sort of similar to people who were addicted to substances. So they craved uh, climbing, they lost interest in any other activity other than rock climbing, they had negative emotions, including agitation, frustration, and restlessness. So what is it about these people? Is it, like, why, why are these people... Um, you know, potentially even addicted to an unsafe version of fear. Um, studies have shown that the the greatest predictor of this type of, of person is a personality trait. So um, personality traits are typically about 50% hereditary. Um, and it's been shown that, you know, basically this um, sensation-seeking could be labeled a personality trait. Um, so it, it sort of, uh, is the search for almost a, a high anxiety sensation. And so this has been shown in a variety of studies. Again, um, these people are also more likely to, uh, engage in, um, not just dangerous behaviors related to like extreme sports, but uh, they're more likely to develop additional addictions. If we call sensation seeking itself an addiction, um, they're also, you know, for example, they're 
more likely to perceive something like excessive drinking to have benefits and no risks than people who aren't sensation seekers. So they're, they're, even their sort of cost-benefit analysis for non-related activities is quite different and, and in a way that just shows, again, right, the, the value of the reward is way higher than any potential harm of the risk in the calculus of these people. So it's, it's generally considered a personality trait. I think it's really fascinating to consider the vice versa effect of this, right? Because when I think about addiction, I know that it is also a genetic component that Mm -hmm. there can be a family history. And as I've, you know, shared here before, this is a family history for us. And when I think about, for example, some family members who have worked hard to overcome addictions that they may have, they were thrill seekers. My goodness. Like they, uh, one of them was known to just do the craziest things. And in his mind, I, I say that from like a complete loving and supportive perspective because it made him happy. Um, but he would like walk on the railings of a deck, for example, right? Like the deck would be like uh. 20, I'm talking not even just like six feet off the ground, but like 20, 20 some feet off the ground. And he would just pace on the railings of the deck. And I with like my hands would be clasped on my face and I, I like, you know, looking through the, the, the fingers, you know, like wedging mm-hmm. my fingers open. Like I couldn't watch it because it made me so nervous, but it didn't have the same effect on him. And I'm wondering if, you know, if you know that you're disposed to addiction because of a family history, if finding positive outlets for this thrill-seeking behavior is a safer, um, like, energy that you can funnel towards that. And obviously, like, that's, I know that you're not saying that's what the science is. I'm just kind of extrapolating mm-hmm. based on what we know from the science and what we also know from um, the potential for addiction to be genetic. Like, I'm wondering how much of... Um, you could kind of proactively train your body to be interested in something that is more of um, this kind of thrill-seeking sport, but doing it in a way that, like, is protected, right? Like, if you decide to rock climb, there are safety measures that you can take, right? Like, different Ropes. things like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> let's not, let's not just let's encourage not free people. solo this yes. one? Oh, yeah. So, I can't. That's one of those, like, anxiety makers for me. Yeah, no, like, no, I can't. I haven't actually watched it because, again. Nope. No, nope. Not for me. Not for me. Yep. Nor could I watch the one where the guy is, like, avalanched. And I think he, I don't even want to know because it just, you know, but I heard a lot of stories about that movie people were talking a lot about it where he was like stuck in the snow for a long time I'm like nope not for me that's not nope gonna pass on that one I'm gonna nope um realistic situations are a problem for me the horror movies that I really like are um ones where it's like all made up like vampires and ghosts and things Mm, like that and like I'm totally I can watch that all day long but the minute that it's like based on a true story that's when I like start biting my nails for real and I'm like ooh, like true crime fascinates me but I can only 
limit like how I'm consuming that information. Like I really enjoy podcasts, for example, of true crime, but if it's a show, then it's, it's just a little too real, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, nope. the visuals definitely, especially, you know, I, I'm probably a visual learner above and above all other forms of learning. And so, um, and I have a, a semi photographic memory, so it's not true photographic memory, but I could, I can find the, Page yeah, I store that images. the information yes. is on and I know exactly the layout of the page and where the, the graphs are and where the image is and exactly which paragraph my information is in, but I can't remember the information. I can't pull it up with enough detail to be able to read it in my brain. So that's, that's, it's cool. It could be cooler basically. Um, but yeah, so because of that, and I think that's why I get nightmares. I think the, the visuals stick in my brain more than any other form of information. And so I have to be really careful with, cause I also enjoy true crime podcasts, but I also have to kind of um, like almost uh, like I have to be careful about how many of them I'm listening to in a, in a certain period of time so that I'm keeping kind of below whatever the cusp is for it to start again, invading my dreams because then it's an immersive experience and uh my hippocampus is asleep so it can't even tell my amygdala that i'm safe in the middle of the dream i guess the remaining question then is how does one kind of parse apart this bio individuality response right we've talked about things like if you are feeling anxious over a long period of time, if you're having digestive distress, right? Like how does one factor in if they're having a positive adrenaline response or if their body is really telling them like, no, we really need a break from being traced by the lion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it it's just, uh, you know, a lot of self-awareness is, is what it takes. And I recognize there are situations where you know maybe your whole family likes to watch horror movies and you don't and you don't want to participate but you like you like the family bonding aspect of it but you don't like the horror movie aspect of it I think one of the biggest take-homes for me from doing all the the research for this podcast is that fear it's in in a safe way is a really positive experience and one that humans are definitely hardwired to seek out. But because context is so important, how we process the information is very individual. And you don't need to have had a traumatic experience in your past for your reasoning brain to not be able to completely dampen that fear response, right? It is just how, you know, as I kind of gave the example of me as a visual learner, the, the visuals are part of how I am interpreting the, the stimulus. And so it's just how I'm, how I'm wired, right? I, I have a much easier time with podcast form compared to TV or, me, or movie form. I have a much easier time with dystopia where I can more easily dissociate myself from the, that world as a, as a reality but for some reason, horror movies, even if it's vampires, I, I can't. Um, and there's just something about how I experience that, that uh, one thing, you know, uh, is really uh, fun for me because it's fun fear. 
and the other one's really not fun. And so I, I think it just takes some self-awareness and some self-reflection to be able to go, yeah, this, this is, this is the type of fear that I really enjoy. And this is the type of fear that I don't enjoy. And then I think, you know, then we're just advocating for ourselves the way we talk about on this show fairly often and saying, this isn't for me. Uh, this is what I would prefer to do. Um, I have one daughter who, you know, she's very aware of what types of movies or TV shows uh, she she doesn't, you know, she doesn't enjoy. And if the rest of the family want to watch it, she goes to, you know, another room and watches something else by herself. Or we have a whole conversation about, you know, maybe this isn't the thing, you know, if we're not all going to want to watch this what is something that we'll all want to watch? And so part of it is advocating for yourself. And then part of it is um, respecting the people around you who are advocating for themselves and understanding that this is a really individual thing. And that's totally okay. And then also recognizing there there is a space where... Um, where even if you're tipping into a stress response where it can be it can be unhealthy so um it there there is a space where you may be tipping into the stress response and not really necessarily recognizing it i've been wanting to write for a long time about stress addiction it's something that i find fascinating and as a very type a person who, um, you know, tends to work a ton. Um, I recognize a bit of this, uh, in myself, but there, there are studies that have shown that there are some people who create drama and crises in their lives in order to trigger a stress response because of the rush that comes with excitement and negative experiences and negative mood. So as a, as a final, just, you know, wrapping up all the loose ends on this conversation. Um, in addition, this is a separate thing from thrill seekers who are specifically seeking out novel sensation, right? The experience of danger in order to get the adrenaline rush. It's helpful to know that there is such a thing as, a, uh, again, it's not classified as an addiction. Um, so the, this is my words, not the science's words, but a, a, a seeking out of the stress response, not just the adrenaline rush. So, so it's helpful, you know, I think always to, to reflect on our own tendencies and really be able to understand ourselves. And if you find yourself in this last category, I recommend um, finding a, a therapist to work work through it with because that is not something that is going to to serve you well if you if you happen to be listening to this and suddenly recognize oh it's it's not just a fear response I'm seeking it's a stress response that is that is something that is is worth working on um, but if it's the fear response that you're seeking and you just love true crime or horror movies or roller coasters then, you know, the science shows us that's a fantastic outlet and it is not something that we need to, uh, to avoid. And I think also what's interesting to me about all of that is that it's driven from, uh, 
years and years, like hundreds of years of history for us, right? Like you were talking about sitting around the campfire and, and different things like that. And I think how we individually respond to these sort of things and how um, it's biologically driven in us is something that absolutely we can work on. I should probably see a therapist about snakes. Um, <laughs> but um it's just never been a priority in my discussions. Uh, <laughs> but um, I do think that there are also things that are kind of ingrained in us. And I know we didn't get into it, but, um, you know, his historically there have been, and I don't know, Sarah, if you're going to say there's pseudoscience on this or, or what, because I know it's not something that we dug into, but I'm fascinated by there have been studies that say that like trauma sits in our DNA for generations, up to three generations based on like your grandmother's eggs had a trauma response in it. And how does that play out later in life, so to speak, right? Like, um, and can fear be a part of that? And we don't, we have absolutely no way of knowing, but some people think, and again, there's no science on this, um, but we do know that like some people think that they're born with a fear of knives because of some prior, you know, experience that someone had. And could that be in the DNA or whatever? Like it's, it is interesting to me to think about how all of this plays in over time. And, um, also how the traumas that we've individually had affect the things that we're willing to watch or not watch or the responses that we have now, like your and my responses to Handmaid's Tale are completely different, yeah. but we've also have very different lived life experiences, right? And so um, when I think about how this is very bio-individual and can be a positive outlet, it's very much like, okay, let me go in this opposite direction from where you go with it. And I think that is, it's sometimes difficult to be self-aware, but how wonderful to realize that if you can tap into that, how you can have something to lean on when you know that you um, want to have a little bit of a pep or a pick-me-up, which is interesting because I've always leaned into things like, RuPaul's Drag Race or dancing movies or different kinds of things for like a mood lift, but to kind of understand the biology of how this is affecting us and how I could, I could activate a fear response and to have a positive physical reaction as well, um, feels very empowering, right? Like it's just, it's, it's helpful information. So I appreciate you diving into the science on this and I appreciate you also actively biting your tongue so hard it's bleeding when I started talking about um, <laughs> fear and DNA over lifetimes. Okay, okay. well, let's not, <laughs> let's, I just want to explore that a little bit because actually, yeah. you know, there are studies showing epigenetics are yeah. inherited and uh, physical trauma is inherited epigenetically, right? So there was the really fascinating studies where they showed that a, time of famine in the grandparents generation could be seen in the in the DNA of you know the grand the grandchildren mm -hmm. so uh, I could imagine that there could be an epigenetic and we know epigenetics are heritable so th there could be an epigenetic effect but also I think it's worthwhile you know go coming back to that main idea that we started the show on, 
that we can learn fear and safety through stories, right? Through books and movies and TV, but also the stories that our relatives tell us. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, if it's the case of the person who's afraid of knives and doesn't understand why, because they have had zero experiences, and then they find out later that their great grandmother was stabbed, um, that then I would want to go like, okay, let's, let's explore the epigenetics of this. But I think also, you know, we have to keep in mind that uh, everything about our day-to-day experiences are helping to inform this response. So if you've heard the story that your great-grandmother was stabbed, then you're learning the fear of knives just through spoken word, right? So I think it's definitely a complex system. I mean, brains are amazing and complex and only very, very minimally understood. Um, so I don't, I don't want to discount that there could be an epigenetic effect here. Epigenetics are awesome. I just, I, there's a mic that dropped there. I don't know if you heard it, but I, I loved it. It just, (laughs) I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you just said. Like I, um, and honestly that epigenetic study is something that I'm going to, I'm going to put in the queue maybe for 2022, because it is something that has fascinated me for years as someone who is the daughter of an adopted mother who like, we don't have history of things. And so therefore she wouldn't have the stories and trying to kind of like parse through that and learn epigenetics that way. But now having met the biological family, like what, trying to piece together things and you know what I mean it's just kind of a fascinating topic for me so and I do agree that there there is science and there is also like the well maybe that's just something that you're afraid of <laughs> like yeah. it's, you know and so there's there's no definitive answer and I don't I don't know how we would ever figure that out and I'm sure there's some brilliant scientist that's you know currently six years old thinking about it it's gonna (laughs) someday become information we can all consume but in the meantime thank you so much Sarah for diving into the science on fear I like I said I feel very empowered with kind of what I'd piece together for my own well-being and reduction of stress and um, trying to work on reducing my cortisol but also feeling um, good about the fact that I do like some scary things and I do like true crime and that's okay because I'm not getting the same kind of response. So this is super exciting for me and I hope our listeners feel the same way. If you want to hear more on this topic, you can hop on over to patreon.com slash the whole view. We always have a follow on episode every single week for our Patreon community where we'll share what we really think on this topic. And I think this week will be pretty interesting. And we also have some stories to share um, about this week as well. And then uh, we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. 
And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. All right. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. It's going to be it's going to be spooky. That will make it somewhere. <laughs> Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.